Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Scott Gamora. Dr. Gamora is a minimally invasive and bariatric surgeon at McMaster University. We had a blast talking about a variety of topics, but in particular talked a lot about surgical education, almost magical process of producing a surgeon. There's some real pearls here for surgical residents, and I'm just going to get out of the way now and let's get to the episode. So, uh, Dr. Gamora, th- thank you very much for being on the podcast uh, with us. We know how busy you are, and uh, it's, it's really a, a pleasure to have you on. In uh, in full disclosure to everyone who may or may not be listening, um, you know, you and I have been friends and known each other uh, um, very closely for what's uh, shockingly almost 20 years now. I guess it'll be 18. Um, so I, I think I know you well, and we're going to try and steer this conversation in a, in a really interesting place because I've always been... Um, enamored with, and to be honest, jealous of uh, of the way you think, and I, I really do mean that. You're, you're, uh, despite your your disdain for the word, you're you're an innovative thinker, and and I've always learned a lot from you. So I, I thought maybe we would start and just give the listeners a little bit of of, of knowledge about your pathway through uh, clinical medicine, because it's been a little bit different than most. Um, you know, you and I started out as residents together. You pursued a, a, a trauma surgery fellowship that you completed at uh, at uh, Ryder in, in Miami, and then went on to New York City and did uh, bariatric surgery. So, t- tell us, maybe give us some insight into into what you were thinking and and how that pathway evolved. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me on your podcast, and uh, congratulations on the success of your podcast. There's a lot of people talking about it, so I know you're a humble guy, but it's uh, fantastic what you guys are doing. Um, yeah, I mean, trauma. Holy cow. There is nothing that beats trauma. I, I, I don't have to tell you that. I miss trauma so, so much. Um, it's all I've ever wanted to do. I think both of us. I mean, I try to think back, right? It's 2002. And I think it was certainly my first rotation on general surgery. And there was just no question. Uh, this is what I was going to do, funny enough, for the rest of my life. Um, there's this, I don't know, there's something that happens when you see, when you're dealing with that I mean, albeit rare, but that that exsanguinating patient, and it's you and that patient. There is nothing going on in your head. There is no internal dialogue. It's so primal, um, and I don't know. There's this kind of this kind of uh, I don't know beautiful purity, you know, that that kind of happens in trauma in those situations. And again, I don't have to tell you this. I think we're on the same page. But there is nothing that kind of compares to that, I, I think, for me, at least in, in surgery or medicine. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting. There's even kind of a purity in, in not having to focus on surgical technique in a way. You know, I think like in trauma, when we talk about technique, we talk about we really mean efficiency. Right. I think like a, a really technically good trauma surgeon has that kind of battery of knowledge and that pattern recognition. But it's kind of speed, exposure. It's not a meticulous dissection. They know their anatomy well. They know where they have to get to. They have to deal with that problem. And 
and, and I think, you know, in elective surgery, like the, the, the scorecard different, you know, the scorecard is, is much more of that. Can I attain perfection in trauma? It, the end result is really simple. Like it, you, you stop the bleeding. Like that's it. That's yeah, great. For sure. Um, you know, and I, and I think like, you know, an elective, it's a little bit, you know, not to overuse, uh, you know, the, the kind of, you know, analogy of, you know, playing a video game or something, but the ability to kind of redo something, you know, you, you did your first Whipple and I'm, I'm sure it was great, but your second Whipple was better. And I know you, and I know your third Whipple, you're like, I'm going to be better than my second Whipple. And then by your fifth, 500th Whipple, you're like, that's going to be, but there's this constant improvement trying to get to, to perfection, which you can never get. And so for me, you know, I was going to be a trauma surgeon. And then I had, you know, this idea of like, well, on my off weeks, I'm going to, I need to have an advanced skill set. I don't want to just kind of be a, a generalist for me. So uh, uh, our mutual friend, Shazir Karmali, you know, I want to do laparoscopic surgery. And he suggested, you know, do bariatrics, which to me was laughable at that time. It was non-existent in Calgary. Um, and he, he gave me really good advice. He said, do bariatrics and make sure you do it with somebody who does a hands-on and astomosis. And I didn't really kind of get it at that time, but I did it. And um, uh, it kind of changed, it changed everything. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but just kind of that ability to kind of hone uh, like a, a small number of kind of surgical procedures and, and, and getting to, to mastery um, was, was so appealing. And also the patient population, funny enough, you know, in trauma, the, you know, the, the quote unquote real or the severe or the unstable traumas are often the penetrating traumas. And that population, you know, as, as you know, every, as you can tell me better than I can tell you, when you, you know, crack their chest and, and stop bleeding, you know, from their heart, they don't wake up kind of uh, grateful that they are alive. It's in a lot of ways that they're really not happy that they got shot, you know? So it's like, it's a unique patient population. And, and in bariatric surgery, these patients are coming in and they're crying and they're, thank you so much. You changed my life. You can't even recognize them. They look like different people. So anyways, I, I made a call. You are probably the only person I know that's been able to kind of balance that wave into both worlds. And, and that's the kind of idea. Man, I, I'm, I'm jealous of that, that you can kind of have a foot in both worlds. I, I ended up kind of making a decision. I'm going with, with the latter, you know, becoming a, a laparoscopic surgeon and kind of giving up the, the trauma career as much as, much as I, I regret or at least miss doing so. That is a fantastic, uh, I think, very poetic description of trauma surgery uh, and a very cogent reason for, for the choices that you made. I'm curious how your bariatric fellowship kind of changed uh, your philosophy on learning and teaching laparoscopic techniques. Yeah, it's such a good question. It, it profoundly—I almost lost my mind during fellowship. It profoundly changed uh, during during my bariatric fellowship. It, tri- it completely, completely changed how I viewed surgery. You know, like uh, again, we've we've spoken about this in the past, but it's always amazing to me how the heck we actually train people to be like how it works at the end. How is it back in the day? And still to this day, you kind of come in, you're, we're doing open surgeries for the most part, certainly when we were training and there's no way to practice there. We have Zollinger, like a, an, an atlas where, you know, a total gastrectomy is basically three illustrations and you're like, okay, like now I guess that's how you do a total gastrectomy, right? It's, it was pre YouTube. We had no videos yet. So it's nothing. There's nothing. Right. And so, 
like I always kind of think like imagine like you had like a bat boy just like one day like in a major league game you like sit the bat boy like all right you're gonna you're gonna pitch this game and they're like I I, I don't I've never pitched yeah yeah don't worry it's fine you're you're gonna pitch and they pitch and and like they can't even get to the you know to, to the hitter and they go uh go go sit down you're not ready yet you know and then you know two months later like oh yeah c- come back up here try that again and it's like it would never happen outside of surgery. It's how we teach residents. We just they just watch, and then one day you're like, yeah, yeah, do it, and then they can't do it well, and you're like, you, uh, let, let me take that. It's okay. <laughs> you know, this, this is a hard case. Let me do it, um, and then you do it, and then they go back, and but somehow at the end of that they kind of get the confidence. But what happened, you know, was at the end of trauma, we had I had this huge revelation with my my co-fellows doing trauma, and that was you know in Ryder. Look, trauma is like the, a lot of the injuries in trauma are rare. I don't, again, I don't have to tell you, you know, the subclavians, the cavas, and it's not something that you're going to hit every night or even senior fellowship. You could just not be on call on the night that you had these things. And we were noticing that, you know, I had a run where I like, was doing thoracotomies almost every night, and my co fellow had never done one. And my co fellow had done, you know, a bunch of these vascular injuries, and I hadn't. So we had this idea of, what happens if we, again, this is, I don't know, what, what year was our fellowship chat? It was like 2006, 2007, something like that. And yeah, we, exactly. we, we kind of bought, and at that time it was ghetto, but we bought like this head cam, you know, it was, it was like, I guess the equivalent of like a, a GoPro or something like that for the time. And we kind of said like, hey, we're going to be on call. What we're going to do is we're going to just record these trauma cases. And that way we could have, you know, like I could see what, you know, Dan, my, my co-fellow did, and he could see, we'll have this like library of cases again, Pre YouTube, you had no way, you know, if someone wanted to, if you want to learn how to do an ER thoracotomy, you, you read a book, or maybe if you were lucky, you saw it once in your residency over, over your staff person's shoulder, that you had no way of learning that. And we kind of put the, these cameras on our head and we got these really unbelievable footage because you're really looking through the eyes of the surgeon, you know, when, when the fellow looked up at the, at the, uh, at the vital signs monitor, you know, the, obviously the cameras span for that, and you kind of see, we had like this, this great footage and we were able to teach ourselves or at least way better what, oh, how do you fix the cardiac injury or this or that? And I guess my point is in a long, very winded way, when I got to bariatrics, it was, it was similar because we were able to record cases. So holy cow, to be able to record a master, the person who's training you doing a case and to be able to watch it a thousand times. And at that time, the iMac had just come out and there was, iMovie, which was like the, the, the Apple, you know, movie kind of, you know, editor and stuff like that. And I, I just have, got this huge kind of archive of, you know, Dr. Teixeira, who was training me, of him doing it. And, and things that looked like magic, I realized weren't kind of magic. Like, you know, he would, uh, you know, my, my laparoscopic skills in retrospect were very limited when I started fellowship. And I would look at him and, and he's just like flipping a needle, like it's like a yo-yo, like poof, it just lands perfectly. And I, I couldn't do it. I, it, it I, I, I could not understand how to load it. And then you slow down the video and you kind of look and you're like, oh, he turned his instrument 10 degrees. And then it just, oh, that's the, and you realize what looks like magic, what looks like somebody was just born with skills is truly kind of a learnable thing that we're just not able to do in open surgery, but we can do it in laparoscopic surgery because we can record everything and everything that you see on a screen, you can watch later thousands and thousands of times frame by frame by frame. And by the end of fellowship, it wasn't, I could do more than load a needle. You know, I could operate almost indistinguishably. I mean, as arrogant as that may seem, when you put up two pieces of video, 
I just emulated him and modeled him. And I couldn't believe the, the learning, like how quickly my skills developed by using video recording. And it dramatically kind of changed how I view teaching, right? We, when a resident, you know, is doing a lap coli or whatever it is, they're not watching 20 videos or 50 videos of themselves doing a lap coli. They are completely, in a, they can't learn on the fly. But when you break it down and you watch the videos and you're like, listen, you re-grabbed, you know, Hartman's pouch seven times, you know, after tw two times, change to a tooth grasper or whatever the case is, you know, it, it completely changes the trajectory of learning. And I think that especially now with kind of, you know, the work hour restrictions, if we don't have these kind of alternate modalities, I don't know how you come out being a good surgeon. You might be like a minimally, minimally acceptable surgeon like yes you could take out a gallbladder and not hit the cbd maybe you get a critical view but to be a proficient and efficient kind of surgeon i don't know how you get that by just kind of practicing for these little spurts of time throughout residency so it for sure changed how i teach residents now like they're not allowed to operate with me for example if they're not recording their case it's it's just too painful for me not to be able to correct them afterwards so that's my long-winded answer to that question. Uh, Dr. Ball told me a story about you in, in fellowship, and I, I, I'll ask you to tell it as well. He told me that when you started fellowship, your preceptor kind of made you, he would sit in a corner and he would just go, uh, uh, and and every time you made a mistake, and then he would you, you were forced to do it all, your right hand, all. Can you tell that story? Yeah, you know, he would, uh, he was, he's a, he's a really great guy, you know, um, and he wasn't so great at teaching you this is how you do it, turn your hands 10 degrees, but he was really good at showing you uh, uh, how to get to where you need to get to. And he would just sit there and it'd be like one, like he would just count the number of times you grabbed it, like, eh, okay, grab again. Eh. And he would just say that in the corner. It was infuriating. Like, what do you, but you realize like, oh man, like it's, it's taking me seven times to load this needle. Like that needs to be fixed. He was left-handed, I was right-handed, but he could operate in both hands. I guess obviously left-handed people are tend to be more ambidextrous. I'm right-handed, purely right-handed. And this guy, you know, halfway through my residence, uh, halfway through my fellowship, said, you need to be able to operate with both hands. And I said, like, what do you mean, like backhanded? No, 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 both hands. No, but I'm right-handed. It's okay, you're gonna learn left-handed. So what do you mean, <laughs> learn left-handed? Like, if you think about it, if you're right-handed and you try and write with your left hand, it's an impossible task. And he got, you know, one of the reps to give me a simulator from those days. And I brought it to my little apartment in, in New York. And like a madman, like on beautiful, you know, like what's a movie, Beautiful Mind. Like I sat there like a crazy man thinking about this and just like what just like kids play with a yo-yo for hours and hours and hours. And they could do all these tricks. I just put one hand behind my back and I'm like, that's it. We are, we're, I'm getting there. And I just went with my left hand, left hand, left hand. And at first, I literally could not, it wouldn't even move. You know, when you start laparoscopy and you try and grab something and your hand moves the wrong way. And you're like, wow, like what just happened here? I couldn't do a thing. Um, and then it, all of a sudden, uh, it develops to the point that today, my left-handed suturing is far better than my right-handed suturing, which is hilarious. Um, but it was, it was a really good lesson. And I, if I could just say one more thing on that. That kind of dovetails nicely. There was this article by, I think it was the Tulba Wandi, an endocrine, yeah, obviously, you know, he is an endocrine surgeon in Boston. And he, he had this great article, I think it was in the New Yorker, where he talks about uh, 
he, you know, this guy has done, you know, Dr. Gwanda has done, you know, thousands and thousands of thyroids, right? But he, he decided, he's like, well, Michael Jordan has a coach and, you know, these athletes have a coach. And he decided to, to bring in one of the best surgeons who had retired in Boston, you know, who had a very good reputation for being that, that guy who just had good insight. He'd been retired for 10 years. He said, can you just come into my OR and kind of watch me operate and take notes and see if you can kind of coach me? And, you know, he, again, Togo Wande writes in this article, kind of, he thought like there's nothing that you're going to be able to improve. Like I've done a, this person is not an endocrine surgeon and B I've done thousands of these. Like I'm, and he goes, and he brought the guy in and he said, at the end of this, the guy had pages and pages and pages of notes on things that Togo Wande was, could improve on. Right. So, you know, he'd say, every time you grab the bobie, the cord got wrapped around, you know, your, your, your post. Like, so move the post over so your cord doesn't do that because you, you, it's like six or seven times you're yanking on the cord so you could use your bobie. And it would just go down the list of, of things and you realize like, we have no coaches in, in surgery, right? Uh, I mean, yes, like occasionally you'll kind of get a grunt or a good job or try it this way. But to have someone who really sits there as in, in sports, and breaks down what you're doing, uh, 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 wrong, you know, like that, to that kind of degree, we don't have it. it. It's a major, major flaw in our training. Major. That's, that's, um, it's so interesting, right? To, to think of, of, <laughs> of surgical training and, and you and I very early, uh, in our residency used to talk about, um, the outlook and, and the need to be a sponge, uh, the, the need to have the drive that you're that you're describing to become superb and and ultimately hopefully to become a master surgeon. Um, you know the, your description of, of using video to to help improve the efficiency and the rate of training is 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 critical. But you know we also used to talk about the the amount of time where essentially you were waiting, poor use of time, not, not really on our fault, but that's, you know, in some ways the waiting game of surgery, right? You're waiting between cases, you're waiting on call between seeing patients here, all those, all those elements. So in a, in a, in a 2020 world where, where you have work hour restrictions and you have uh, right or wrong, a, a different outlook, a, a more millennial outlook, all, all these sorts of, of caveats and, and factors that fall into that outside of video training uh, to the level of efficiency that you're talking about, do you have any other comments or suggestions or thoughts about how a resident can make, or, or a fellow can make their time more valuable um, in, in an yeah. era of less of it, you know, less exposure? Do I have thoughts or opinions? Is that what you're asking me, Chad? <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> um, I, I have a lot, you know, um, I, I don't know. I have, you know, I met, I met this, uh, I have a good friend who, is an LPGA player. Uh, you know, I, I met her, I don't know, I, I think actually around the time of fellowship. And we had, it was fascinating to me. I know nothing about that world at all. You, you had a, a bit more exposure with hockey. I, I know nothing about it. But I would have these conversations with her. And, and I remember, you know, I remember her asking once, like, so how do you guys practice? And, you know, as we were saying before, I was like, well, you just kind of do it. She's like, no, 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 I, I understand. But like, you know, how do they teach you to do it? Like, like, you know, visualization. And I'm like, well, how do you learn how to golf? She's like, and she goes through this list of, she's like, well, every day I get up and I start by visualizing my swing. I'm like, hey, what does that mean? She's like, no, no, no. And she's like, pulls out this book of step-by-step -step visual. Like, this is what you're going to visualize. I do that for 15 minutes. Then I go and I review my video 
recordings of my swings from yesterday. And then I practice my breathing so that when I, you know, when it's an important kind of putt, I'm able to slow down my breathing and kind of, and not kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, lose it in, in the moment to choke in the moment. And she's going through all these things. And, and she's like, well, so what do you guys do? Like, how, I'm like, well, we don't do any of, of that. And what was fascinating to me, so she had recommended this book to me. And it was a book that she said a lot of like the pro athletes, uh, uh, I think it's called like five minute mental toughness or something like this. But it's basically sports psychology. And what's interesting to me is that we haven't incorporated it all it at all into our world. Like, I don't know if it's because surgeons are just so, you know, kind of <laughs> emotionally, you know, kind of backwards, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what it is. Like if you said to a surgeon, like, Oh, I'm sitting now with my eyes closed, visualizing. They would look at like many, yeah. I think, would look at you like you've you've lost it. Yeah, but you know, yeah. I kind of think about. I don't know. You must have gone through this when you were doing your HPB training. I remember in my bariatric training. Uh, again, I almost lost my. I would go to sleep. I would be dreaming about this damn gastric bypass and do deals. Like I'm dreaming about it, and it's replaying it over and over and over. And kind of, okay, what's my next step? What's the next step? What's the, and it translates to real life. And I think that we're losing a whole skill set um, uh, that is very well known, very well researched in sports psychology that we just do not even tap into whatsoever in surgery, right? Like, it, it, I mean, it, it's, a, it's as simple as that. And I, I think it's a big problem. And I think back to like, what's the one skill that every resident can do with, with their eyes closed? It's the only skill that they could practice. And that's tying a one-handed knot because they could all practice it on the arm of a chair. Right. There is no R4 that's like, I'm not that good at tying one handed knots. Everybody could do it because it's possible to practice that. And it might take somebody, you know, a month to master it. It might take them a year, but, but they're able to practice it. We don't have that. We have these simulators that we can kind of maybe practice some, you know, again, the choreography or some general kind of stuff. I, I could talk a long time on simulators in general, but we're just, not there and we probably won't be there for a long time where we're able to actually replicate it the surgical experience with fidelity like that come on that's what 50 years away 100 years away so uh so if we don't use these other ways and again like i you know the residents now they don't even understand how lucky they are to have youtube and and web search chat like all of this is out there you could watch videos and pause it and rewind it and if you don't use it, you are crazy. You are crazy. Yeah, it's it's so true. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And you and I have talked about this before as well. Like, when you think about your own experience and my own experience, whether that was elite sports, or whether that was training professional athletes, or whether that's aerospace medicine uh, and being around astronauts and, and that whole world, I mean, the, our training paradigm in, in surgery just seems so dated and so slow. Uh, and so non-efficient for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's uh, it's a little bit depressing, quite frankly. And I, I don't, I've never understood for a group of people that clearly are 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 very smart and work really hard and are really quite driven. Um, why that hasn't evolved at a greater rate and 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 with more fidelity and with more um, um, oomph, so to speak, um, than so many other fields. It it is interesting. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, but it, it's a major problem, you know, and again, people far more eloquent than I have spoken on this with a, with a lot more thought on it, but the work hour restrictions may, 
it's a scary thing. You know, I just, not even that long ago, we don't do hardly any trauma at our hospital, but we had a, a drop off, a uh, splenic, an unstable splenic uh, lack, you know, that came through. And mm-hmm. I was with the R5. Like, like, it's almost at the end of the year, right? I'm with the R5. And I'm like, okay, like, like, let's go. Have you seen this? And they're like, no, I haven't done a trauma splenectomy. You know, I'm like, Wow. And I realized, look, every generation says this, you know, like, you know, the, the surgeons before, before us would say like, oh, what do you mean? Like uh, open common bile duct explorations. What do you mean you haven't done them? Or like, well, we don't do them anymore, you know, or or whatever the case may be. Every generation thinks that they're, they're so, you know, superior to the, you know, to the one that comes after. But it's a, it's a big problem to come out without having, uh, I mean, seen, you know, let alone do, but seen like surgical procedures. It, it needs to be solved or there will be, there will be, I think, uh, pretty, uh, horrifying consequences. Well, so what do you, what should a trainee, uh, like put yourself in my shoes? Um, like what do you think? Like I, I'm, I should be, uh, meditating and, or visualizing before every case. Like what, what should I be doing? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So let's take the word meditating out. I have a lot of, uh, I could talk a long time about meditating. Okay. But if, if you say the word meditating, you've lost 99.7% of surgeons. They've just pressed, they've just turned off the podcast. Um, <laughs> um, but you, you like, there are, st- you know, if you, you know, I would say like, if you ask, like before I do a lap coli with a resident, so it's like an R3 and I'll say like, okay, we're about to do a lap coli. Okay. Tell me the steps. They look at you like, like you're from another planet. Like, like, how do you mean the steps? I'm like, what are the steps? They're like, oh, you mean like, where do I put the port? I'm like, no, no, no. The steps. Tell me, move by move, what you're going to do. Because when I do a lap quality, I have my recipe. I first retract this way. I take, you know, the hook. I buzz the peritoneum. I take it anteriorly. I take it posteriorly. I, like, I have step by step. And when you ask the resin, I mean, like, oh, you mean like get the critical view? Like, no, no. I, I know you know the buzzwords and the big kind of points of it but if you can't in your head play that movie of you doing a gallbladder in an ideal situation forget it in real life so we say meditating i would say more i mean again whatever label you want to put onto it you have to be able to see in your mind yourself doing your procedure from the start to the finish or you are not able to do it at a master level period full stop period you know and uh uh, so yeah, I think before every case, and I think all the good surgeons do this. I mean, I have no doubt that Chad does this or, or you know, every surgeon, right? Where you're like, okay, so I'm going to come in, I'm going to take it this way. I'm going to take it and you have it figured out. So that'd be my first kind of, um, uh, kind of suggestion is that you need to understand a procedure at that level, not like, oh, I'm going to take the line of pulp on a right hemi, but to be able to say like, okay, I'm going to grab right here on the bowel i'm going to pull i'm going to take my if you're doing an open you know colon let's say uh i'm going to buzz it right here i'm looking to see you know the the frog fur that plane open up i'm gonna, you need to be able to visualize it at that level i think that that's kind of the first step that is fantastic advice i i have to also confess that um i was at your talk on the the stop the bleeding workshop that uh dr ball put on uh, at cags um, and I, I think you talked about, uh, in, in trying to control laparoscopic bleeding, you talk a, a lot about techniques, not only kind of mentally visualizing what you need to do to stop the bleeding, but you had a bunch of techniques on just even managing your own emotions in the room, 
managing um, uh, your, your own uh, uh, emotions as well as like the the um, kind of tenor in the room. How did that, how did your, because I've never heard anyone talk about stopping something that happens to us every day in laparoscopic surgery, kind of that uh, succinctly and uh, eloquently. Yeah, um, I, I think it kind of dovetails with what we were talking about before. You know, I remember being uh, just starting my second year residency, and I'm at the Lougheed, and I'm doing again to come back to a, a, a colorectal case, but it was a low anterior. You know, I'm this, you know, low life, you know, <laughs> lowly uh, second year resident, just starting. I I, I can't tie my my shoelaces barely, and I remember you know the surgeon kind of being like, okay, you're going to do kind of the you know, you're going to start to do the presequel dissection and you're going to kind of go, you're going to start on, on you know, taking the, the, on the rectum. And I remember starting to buzz and he's like, no, 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 you're in the wrong plane. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, like, where do I go? He's like, you need to be a millimeter. I'm like, okay. So I start buzzing again. He's like, no, 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 a, a millimeter. And I'm like, okay, no, no. And again, I'm in the wrong plane. And then he does it and it just opens. And I remember asking him, I'm like, how did you know to go there? Clearly he saw something. He may not know that he saw it. He may not be able to articulate it, but his brain saw something, a difference in colors, a difference in texture, a, a, something that my eye, my untrained eye didn't see that told him that. And I remember asking, like, just tell, like, tell me what that, that, that is, because then I'll be able to do what you're doing. And, and with that kind of a half a smirk, he just kind of said, like, Scott, you're either born with it or you're not. You know, typical kind of surgeon answer, right? But that that moment stuck with me because I I realized, and again, coming back to the bariatrics and being able to record it, all these things that look magical when you're a resident, like, oh man, he's so calm. Or, oh man, like he, he never gets any bleeding. Or, oh, he's so efficient. Or how does he see this perfectly? Whenever I try and do this, I can't see. They have just done something differently. And it's it's easy to understand when it's, when it's a technical skill, like, yes, this is how, you know, you cocorize, um, you place one hand and like a master surgeon probably who does a lot of, you know, color, uh, who does a lot of HPV would do it better than I can do it because they figured out the recipe, one hand here, one hand there, that gets the tension, that plane will open up easier, da, 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 da. So it makes sense in the technical, but of course we don't think about it in the, I don't want to say emotional, but in the, in the, in the softer kind of world, right? So if you think about it, you know, like I, I remember very clearly seeing, there was a few people that I saw who, who stick in my mind and Chad would ask if I said them, I'll leave them anonymous, but who would just be extremely calm. But these are people who I knew had, they were residents, sincere to me, who had no clue what they were doing. But, you know, one would just kind of like, you know, just, hold, they were just extremely, and I was like watching what they're doing I'm like, okay, they're talking slowly. They're, they have certain mannerisms. And I just copied them. And you realize that a lot of these things is just, if you just kind of are able to break down what the other person is doing, you will get the same result yourself. So, you know, in that talk, I say, when you, you know, crap hits the fan and you get into major bleeding and you get temporary control, for me, my move is to go, hmm, interesting. Because I noticed, that, you know, master surgeons would do that or a version of that, you know? And my, my thought was like, oh my God, this guy, like, he has like a heart, like, you know, what's the name of this podcast, uh, Cold Steel? He has like balls of cold steel. Like it was like the, the, the calmest, you know, I'm like this guy, like not, and I realized, oh no, he's really 
crapping his pants on the inside. But he figured out a skill he may or may not know of just using kind of a, a trigger word to kind of calm himself down. Hmm, interesting. All of a sudden, the whole room is calm. He's calm. Everybody's in control. It looks like a, a magic trick, but it's not. It's just a technique. And there's, I think there's a lot of these. And I, I just know a fraction of them. I wish people would, talk, would, would teach me more, than, more of these, right? Clearly, that there's thousands. Yeah, it's so, it, it's so true. We all have our mannerisms. And, and uh, you know, I, I've, I've changed from interesting to, to good. I've stolen that from, from Jocko Willink's uh, podca- yeah. podcast and his two-minute video, as you know. And I'd encourage anybody listening, if you haven't watched podcast by Jocko, or I should say a video on YouTube called Good by Jocko Willink. Uh, you should. Uh, it's fantastic. But you're right. I mean, when Scott Gamora says interesting or I say good, uh, um, it's probably a pretty pretty serious scenario. It's, it's hey, well, well, listen, I know you hate talking about yourself, Chad, but um, like you have very, very distinct kind of mannerisms. You, out of maybe anybody I know, you talk slowly you don't raise your, I don't remember hearing you yell. I don't think in my life, to be honest with you, even when you're super pissed, it's a very kind of deliberate, you know, like uh, uh, kind of inflection and tone. And it comes across as confidence and it might be true confidence. I don't know. Maybe confidence is, maybe you work backwards and kind of like, and figure it out kind of in retrospect. Maybe that's what it is. It's just kind of, but it's, well, you know, what's interesting, I think, I think Amir can probably comment better than me, and he, he might disagree with you, but I certainly have different uh, tenors and approaches and interactions. Uh, to your point earlier, if I'm doing trauma, if I'm doing elective surgery, um, and that comes from a whole bunch of different places, and I, I think has a whole bunch of different implications on, on the room and, and the, way, the way that you think and, and so on. But um, you're right, and I, I, I think you know, no matter for maybe you that's very good at it or me that's very poor at it, um, it doesn't matter which end of that spectrum you're on. It's something that we all need to work on all the time uh, going forward because we can flip, we can regress, and we can always get better, as, as you point out. So it's, it's, can, I, can, I, can I ask you, what, what, yeah. what are the differences that you have between trauma and elective? I, I think I know exactly what you mean. But uh, what yeah. are the differences, and is it conscious or not conscious? You know, you, yeah, you, um, being sort of similar paradigm uh, um, training pathways. It's it's always interesting to me to take a step back and and to listen to. Um, and I don't mean necessarily where you and I work. I mean everywhere on the earth. Listen to high end trauma folks talk about the elective folks, and listen to the high end subspecialists. Right. The elective folks talk about the trauma folks, and sort of g- going up the middle of that road. I, there is merits to both of those stereotypes going each way. And then there's a lot of untruths. There's a lot of inaccurate stuff that's believed and 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 said. Um, and there's pros and cons to each. And that that's you know I think that's what's fascinating about your kind of dual training. And I I think what hopefully makes me a better trauma surgeon, for example, is HPB training. Um, but you're right. They're 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 different environments. So you know when everyone's excited. Uh, for that injury case and, and the blood pressure is low and the patient's actively dying or, or just arrested in front of you, I, I think you just got to be the calmest person in the room every single time. And people respond to that because what you often, you, what you often see in, in say, a trauma bay 
with many other groups involved, including emergency medicine in particular, is the opposite of that. You see a, um, a, a switch that's flipped and the anxiety or the excitement in the room goes through the roof and it's very, I'd almost call it dangerous. It's counterproductive for sure and it's, it's potentially risky. Um, but as you know, in an elective scenario, it, really many of those things are, are the opposite. So I, I like to think that I would behave differently in, e- in each one, but you're right. It's, it's for sure, at least in my case, it's, it's, it's learned, it's copied, and it's very calculated in almost every circumstance. Can I, can I ask you a deep question? You can ask. <laughs> I, I, answer. I, I know you like going deep, but do you, I felt this coming out of the trauma world into the elective that I, I didn't appreciate, and I'm just curious for you who kind of uh, swings back and forth between both those worlds on a daily basis. You know, in the, what, you know, and a lot of people have said it, but I didn't realize kind of just how true it is. You know, when I, I felt... Uh, definitely there was like a, a tension or a stress in a, in a true trauma case, the guy's exsanguinating, but there was something about it not being my fault. Yes. That was, that was very liberating. And in elective cases, I don't care if it's an appy, you know, like it, like you know, the patient, you spoke to the patient, you worked up the patient, you know, their family, you joked with their family. Um, and when something happens or goes sideways, that, that kind of internal dialogue in your head that you try and kind of suppress, but you kind of, you're like, oh no, like, oh, that's a problem. Like I just cut the, the, the ducks. Like that was not intended. Uh, that's going to stricture. This is guy's going to be, you know, he's just going to leak. He's going to this, he's going to that. Mm-hmm. Whatever the case may be, um, it, it, it's a different game or, or is it not for you? Like when you're doing the Whipple, does it feel different than when you're doing even the worst of traumas? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, right? And I, I mean, the short answer is, of course, yes. Um, I, I sort of like your example. So if you if you take something, let's make it really concrete. So if you take um, an iliac artery stab wound, right? Um, of course, the guy is minding his own business, and it's early in the evening, and all these things, and he shows up at your door, and he's sick. You don't know him, as you said. You have no emotional connection to that person. And then take the patient with a laparoscopic appendectomy for all, and all the details that you described. And the trocar bounces into their iliac artery and creates exactly the same injury. Your emotional, exactly what you're saying, your emotional um, and your, the way your brain processes that could not be more different. So then the question is, why is that? And sure, some of it's that conversation, but I think that it's, it's, logic would say it's even, it's even beyond that. And there's certainly guilt to it and there's um um you know your your brain tends to tends to run down uh pathways both good and bad and and i think the better you get at it the better you control it but you know you could even make the argument i suppose that you know the patients in the laparoscopic elective or semi semi-elective whatever urgent scenario is in a better position like you cause the injury you can see the injury you know where it is it's not that you're opening someone's leg or someone's belly or we're both trying to find the injury. They're not three layers of blood behind. Um, how you approach that, I think, exactly is right in the idea of, of where you've trained and how much you've seen that and all those things go into it. On the, on the trauma side of things, I would always credit, in my case, Dave Feliciano, who to me is an absolute technical technically superb surgeon he's a he's a technocrat by the by the definition and it was interesting to me because he was the first guy i'd ever met in trauma really anywhere in the world that you and i had gone that said this patient is your mother your brother your brother your father your son it doesn't matter that you haven't met them it doesn't matter um 
that they're not related to you, you got to assume they are, and you better provide them perfect care, otherwise there's going to be a, a problem. Um, and I think he meant, you know, between him and whoever, not necessarily the patient, but but that's true. But it's also a little bit unrealistic because of of, of your former comment. Um, and I think that's something you struggle with with always on the elective side. Uh, and it's something that the elective side uh, of, of, of us like to say about trauma and emergency general surgery, right? It's sort of, ah, well, they didn't know that that's it's easy stuff. I don't feel guilt. You know, Dr. Fusiano would try and drive a little bit of that guilt in you on the urgent side and the emergent side because he clearly thought it would make you better at your job. And I think he's right. So uh, I, I couldn't agree with, with anything uh, uh, more strongly than, than what you've said for sure. No doubt. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, you know, the second last question maybe for you is, is, is around the concept of innovation. So, I, again, I, I mentioned that up front, your, maybe your dislike for that term, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a broad term. It's a 30,000-foot term. It can mean a lot of things. But what does it mean to you, and, and how do you apply that, or how do you think about it in the context of surgery? Um, well, so... I'm going to take, I'm going to hit a fraction of that, that big topic. When I did my fellowship, uh, Dr. Teixeira, and maybe this is a, you see this a lot more in the U S than you do in Canada, but, um, every Thursday was experimental surgery day. I remember getting there and he's like, okay, it's Thursday. I'm like, okay, it's experimental surgery day. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? And we would do the surgery with a, a, you know, a colonoscope instead of a laparoscope. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, what program did I come to? We would do the single incision laparoscopy. It was the heyday of, of cells, right? Single incision. And I was furious. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't load a needle with two hands. And now you want me to start learning how to operate? This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. And what I realized was just how wrong I was, you know, that – you have to be really, really careful in surgery um, on saying that something is a is from a, from an innovation point of view is a bad idea because probably what's you know at the very least you have to acknowledge that you might just be on that super super early part of the curve of the technology curve you know so to say that I mean if you look at for example uh, I don't know endoscopic suturing you know so if someone said to you right now you know we should be closing the hole in the colon with uh, with the colonoscope you're like are, are you crazy what are you talking about like it, like that technology right now is the most ridiculous, complex technology that exists. You know, like it, it doesn't work well. It, it takes a lot of everything is bad about it. But if you advance, you know, ten years, twenty years, whatever, however long it takes, and you had an efficient way of suturing that was easily reproducible with a colonoscope, you'd be like, of course I'm going to close that that hole. I just did a colonoscopy and I perfed him. I'm not going to get into the OR. I'm just going to properly suture that hole from the inside. So it's not that suturing is a bad thing, you know, and the example that you and I have spoken about, I don't know how many times was when we started, not even started, but during our whole uh, residency training, we never did trauma ultrasound. We never did fast ultrasound. It was always the radiologist coming up to do it. And, and at that time, you know, this was like maybe on the, well, you can answer that question better than I can, but it was on the early parts of FAST. And the people who had looked into it just five years or 10 years earlier to see whether it was feasible for surgeons to do, they were too early, right? The, the technology wasn't there. The ultrasound machines were garbage. You couldn't see anything. And even if you could see something, you had no idea what you were looking at. There was no systematized way of kind of interpreting 
like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for free air? Are you looking like, how is a surgeon going to read an abdominal ultrasound? It's preposterous. It takes radiologists years. And, and even they're not as good as the text, you know, at, at kind of getting the images. And, and that person was right. You know, when, when that person said, you know, ultrasound and trauma is ridiculous. It was right when, he, when that, at that time. And then I remember very clearly starting my trauma fellowship. And on the first day I'm on, you know, I'm on call and I'm in the trauma bay and the attendings, whatever in the call room. And this guy comes in with a stab, you know, in, in his chest and the intern, the guy is like, I want to say he's like six months into, into residency, picks up the, the probe, throws it on the chest, and he's like, uh, he, ha- he has fluid around his heart. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you're, you're an intern. Like, that's, a, that's the craziest thing. Like, let's get the radiologist down here. Let's do The guy was right. And, and I was like, oh, wait a second. Like, when, when the person that we respect said it was a bad technology, it was back in the day. But now it's no longer, you know. And so when we look at things that pop up, you know, like robotics, you know, like I, we all roll our eyes. Like we're going to do like a robotic hernia repair. What a waste of money. Only the Americans do, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And that might be true now. But if the cost of it and the technology comes down and the docking time and everything, it might not be crazy down the road. And, and when we look at notes, like, oh, what, we're going to do a transvaginal extraction of the, of the gallbladder. Like, are you guys, it makes no sense. That might be true now. But as things develop and the technologies develop, it's not. And I, and I think if I had to kind of give, I'm very careful when I'm around our residents not to say that something is a ridiculous idea and to dismiss it specifically because of that fast, you know, trauma ultrasound kind of scenario. To be really careful to like, well, right now it's not a good platform or a good way of doing something. But you have to keep your, you have to be open. And how many examples do we have of this? I mean, va- you know, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. Va- you know, vascular, right? Like, if that's not the epitome of the example, I don't know what is. You know. Yeah, the, I, I couldn't agree more. The, the ultrasound example, you know, is not only um, close to you and I for sure, but in my fellowship, heading down to Atlanta and being trained by Grace Rizicki, who is the the inventor of the extended and the fast examination for trauma. I mean, she doesn't talk about this because she's, you know, a superb surgeon and an amazing clinician, a wonderful human and really tough. But she was an ultrasound tech essentially before she went to medical school. And when she started to, you know, fuse that concept in her brain and then spent really the first 10 years of her, of her really magnificent career um, inventing fast, the ridicule and the pounding that she received nationally and internationally from other trauma surgeons, including, you know, to be honest, in, in, in some regards to her eventual husband, who I mentioned, Dave Feliciano, um, was unremitting and unbelievable. And and you look at it now and you're like, well, exactly your point. This is not the medical school's, medical students' job in many trauma bays. Like, and it changes what, what we do left, right, and center. So I think your advice is, is sage. We have to be very... Very careful as, as at all levels, but particularly as faculty surgeons, not not to give that impression and and to remain open minded. It's easy to say, it's hard to do sometimes, for sure. Now, first thing I'm going to say that's a, I had no idea that background on Dr. Rizicki that she was an ultrasound tech, and that that's such an awesome story. And you could so see how that happens, right? How the surgeons, the you know, the so superior and mighty, you know, are just kind of rolling their eyes. And look at us, even like take even like even bigger examples and like. When we were training, you know, uh, laparoscopy, you know, like the colorectal surgeons who were kind of like, there is no way I am ever doing a laparoscopic colon. It is ridiculous. And you're like, yeah, it, it wasn't a well-developed kind of technique back then, but it's going to evolve, you know, and to just kind of be in that mode of like, this is stupid. 
uh, I think really holds you back. Yeah, there's no, no doubt. Um, the last question I think we, we want to ask you is a, another broad one. If you're going to boil it down to one or two or three pieces of advice that you, you wish you'd given to the younger you or you wish you had given to to me uh, at some point or, or just trainees in general, what, what would you say? What would you hit on? You know, if I had to give advice to myself, it's going to be a corny answer. Um, uh, you're going to be surprised that me of all people are saying it, but I'm going to anyways. Um, you know, if I had to kind of go back to myself at the start of whatever, medical school or residency, and be like, you need to know this. What I would tell myself is what we do is so insanely crazy. You know, and everybody talks about what kind of privilege it is. And it's such an overused word, but think about it. Like, I mean, like if you just really sit back and think like, I'm taking a knife, I'm opening up a human being. Not only am I opening them up, I'm going to rearrange their insides and put them back together and close them and they're going to be better. Like even just think about the concept of, of you know, cutting out like a small piece of small bowel and putting it together. We don't, we don't think twice about it, you know? And I would tell myself residency by definition and, and also being a faculty by definition and being a working surgeon is going to beat that out of you. That sense of this is the most amazing job in the world. Be so grateful for what you're doing. Residency by definition is going to beat it out of you because it's kind of like, you know, you don't want the pilot who's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm flying. This is amazing. Like you have to have the pilot that's like, I've done it a million times, whatever. It's no big deal. And it's human nature that you, you lose that specialness. I, I would bet you if you talk to an astronaut, you know, they probably give the right answer, but if they were talking amongst themselves, they'd probably say like, yeah, by day four, I'm like, yeah, that's the earth through the window. And yeah, I'm floating. And like, it's easy to lose that awe, you know? And what we do is such a, like there is, I don't even know there is any job in the world that even comes close to surgery. I mean, medicine, sure, but surgery, only a surgeon could kind of understand what that means, that kind of that, that weight that's on you to do it and what, and what you're doing. And, and I would just tell myself, just that has to be a small part of your brain that, that always remembers that. It doesn't have to be like, you know, whatever, that you're this evangelist all day, kind of, you know, screaming how lucky you are. But you have to keep that in the back of your mind because there's going to be a lot of crappy days and good days and boring days. And it's going to be your 100th England or your repair or whatever it is that you do. And you're going to be like, I'm so sick of this damn job. And you can't let that happen. I think that's what I would tell myself. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.